Also, yeah, this fucking uh, Sour Patch Ghost is pretty good. Hell yeah. I, I liked how sour it was. The Sour Gummy yeah. Worm one was not sour tasting. Yeah. Damn, you know? I feel like the uh, the lead design artist of that of Code Geass fucking... Well, was it... Uh, it wasn't adapted from a manga first, was it? No, it's an anime original. Yeah. I the character so. designs by Clamp, which is like a all-female uh, manga group. Okay, listen. They some boob girls, and that's cool, but like I'm not, and I want and and I like some some booty and some thighs, and Code Geass is none of that, which is um, unfortunate. You just haven't gotten to R2 yet, where it's all a fucking Colin's ass all the time. I guess so. Maybe I just... I don't know. I don't I don't like Colin that much, so... That's fair. She is the ass lady. I mean, C- C2's got the pizza butt. That's true. There, there are a couple good shots, but I just feel like, you know, you could straight up raw nipple multiple times... With those huge fucking triple D knockers <laughs> on like just everyone. Everyone gets triple D's. <laughs> Natalie, what happened? I got boob implants at Lelouch. <laughs> or no, he would say, Natalie! Now Suzaku definitely won't fuck with you because he hates fun. <laughs> I love Suzaku, and I feel like I feel like if you're like, "Hey man, want to smoke?" you'd be like, "No." That's illegal. You should not do illegal things. <laughs> Got a fresh cut straight out the salon, bitch. I know you're tired. Of loving, of loving with nobody to love. Listen, if you're not there for his bound to, then you don't deserve his kidsy ghosts. Uh-huh, honey. Welcome to Weebs, Waifus, and Wonders, boys. It's your other boys. It's your boys' boys. Cyborg, Booyah, and Garg. And today we're talking about Code Geass Season 1. Okay, I have a weird way to start off the episode. And it's going to be with a question that you don't have to answer right now. But my answer is Code Geass, right? Uh-huh. So l- let me go ahead and propose the question and you could just think about it. You don't even have to answer this question this episode. If you wanted to think about it and like give us an answer on the Dragon Ball episode or something, whatever. But my question is, and I've been thinking of a couple different ways to word this, so let's see. Um, Can you think of a story, like a work of fiction, that best exemplifies that medium's strengths? Does that question make sense to you? Yeah. So my answer is Code Geass, and I'll, I'll explain to kind of give more context to that question. I think Code Geass is what exemplifies everything good about anime but not even just like everything that is good about anime but like the some of the best parts of the medium 
are things I see in Code Geass. So I was going to start right off the bat and talk about the uh, character design. And we'll go ahead and get this out of the way. Uh, Clamp, which is an all-female uh, manga group. I think they started as a doujin group, which is like a fan-made manga. Even though it doesn't have to be like a, a fan fiction story. Sometimes it's just like uh, like an indie sort of scene for that. But uh, so they're a, uh, a group of manga artists that are known for uh, Cardcaptor Sakura, which you've probably heard of, and uh, Chobits, which was the first anime that I ever watched with subtitles. Oh. So that, they're, they're, it's a special place in my heart, right? Yeah. Uh, but the clamp character design, uh, it's, I think, more, um, it's evocative of the shoujo, the anime and manga that are aimed at women character designs. Yeah. Even though I would say Code Geass is sort of a shonen, would you agree with that? Yeah, a little bit. So I, th- I think that a lot of people will be put off by the character design. So I'm just I'm going right in. I've had so many people talk about the character design being weird or off-putting. The character design for Code Geass, like the long, willowy-limbed characters with these, like, noodle limbs almost. Noodle, noodle limbs. isn't, like, the right term, though, because they're not, like, completely undifferentiated <laughs> limbs. They're just really narrow, right? Yeah. But these narrow, long limbs, like really show off um, the, like, dramatic, over-the-top movements that the characters make, but especially Lelouch. Like, I think if you change the character design to, like, something that's more um, more close to, like, what humans look like, more close to, like, reality and biology, you, yeah. you could do that with and still tell the same story for the most part. But I think what you would be missing out on is Lelouch in particular, and like Suzaku to a degree, and every character I think has a little bit of it, but Lelouch in particular does all of these, like the the waving of his arms and the way he covers his eye uh, for his gias and everything, and his yeah. little like flourishes, and all, all of that is made stronger by the character design. Yeah, definitely. You and you get more like personality from Lelouch because of it. And and I would say Suzaku too, and I would say like maybe the biggest example um of the design working well for Suzaku is his glorious spin kicks. That feel <laughs> they feel so fast and like agile in the animation it's it's great even when he does it in the lancelot it's it's always a treat it's like in it there's a lot of uh memes surrounding code Geass, but the the spin zaku spin kick memes are definitely some of the the strongest i think yeah because it, it's silly looking but it's also just such a every time he kicks something it's it's great right yeah I love it every time. So I was going to kind of continue on the how Code Geass exemplifies anime as a medium thing. Mm-hmm. And my next point, besides character design, would be that it really makes use of the sound design and music. I think you were going to talk about that a little bit. But like the little, is the term leitmotif? Is, do you know what I'm talking about? Leitmotif. Leitmotif. There we go. That's the, like the, there's a song related to the Black Knights. 
there's kind of I think it's like a, a mischief song. It's used a lot for CC, but it's used for some of the other characters too. Yeah. Uh, but like all of these little sound cues and music, or specifically like the music cues, uh, the music is really strong in Code Geass. And I don't think soundtrack is something that a lot of shows and movies can boast about, right? Yeah, you know, I was even thinking about... Um... Gurren Lagann, and I think Gurren Lagann has a great soundtrack. However, I wish there were more soundtracks. I feel like there's a good variety in Code Geass. Yes. Uh, so to give Code Geass, or to give uh, Gurren Lagann its credit, rather, Hiroyuki Sawano is possibly the best composer who works on anime oh, that yeah. I can think of. Yeah, it's it's fucking wonderful. I I mean, yeah, I I think it's absolutely fantastic what we do get. It I just you know I I wish I had a few more tracks because it's so good. Yes, uh, I I do love all the the uses of like the the Spanish guitar in Code Geass's soundtrack. Yeah, and all of the fun like with the the mischief song that i'm not going to try to look up the soundtrack name for but the song that tends to play when like cc's around or like somewhere where she's not supposed to be or there's something happening with the club members that's silly there's like a ooh ah uh-huh ooh, yeah, ah, yeah song and that's like it's not an instrumental that's like uh acapella type or, yeah or vocals that aren't lyrics backing up um, as like vocals as an instrument. I don't know if there's, there's a term for that besides acapella. Right. Uh, but it, the, like the chanting and stuff like that is cool. And I think adds like a, something that you don't see a lot of. I think most of the time, if you do see like the voice used as a instrument specifically for like soundtracks like this, it tends to be like, uh, the Gregorian chanting. Yeah. Stuff yeah. like that. Uh, so I, I don't know. It's a, it's a fun little thing. It, it definitely fits like the, the fun feeling that the song's supposed to have. And I think is like immediately evocative of the, the mischief, like I was calling it. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing you probably might have more sound design, uh, things to talk about, but the one that really sticks out to me is the sound that and the animation that plays with it, but the sound that plays whenever uh, Lelouch uses the Gios. Uh-huh. And it's like a very over-the-top um, epic feeling, I guess. I don't like using the word epic, but it th that's what it feels like to me, is something that's great and larger than life, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely it highlights every time he uses the Gios, but it also, like, I like that it thematically fits with his, the thing that makes him more than human is his Gios, and the thing that, like, makes, uh, make, makes all his plans work out is, like, this supernatural power, something beyond human ability, right? Uh-huh. But it fits, like, that uh, ability fits Lelouch so well since he's so over the top. Right. Could you think of any other sound design things like that? I know you had some notes about it. Well, damn, I, I wish I had some good examples, but all of the action 
sound effects when they're in the nightmares and they're using different attacks. So like them shooting out their Harkins or um, Suzaku using the Varus or them engaging their roller skates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That has a very distinctive noise to it. Yeah. When you said the slash harken, I could hear the little, like, it's like a, a zipper kind of noise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and a lot of these sounds are very unique to Code Geass, and you only hear them in Code Geass. And, and even, I think this kind of works with, like, even if it's just very rarely used in other works, um, like, you, it's only in, like, a handful of works. I think it's still fine. Um, what I'm thinking of specifically is like Bloodborne's parry sound effect. I've actually heard that sound effect a couple times, but every time I hear it, I think Bloodborne parry, right? And likewise, every time I hear one of these Code Geass sounds, I think Code Geass immediately. And I can even see some of the attacks. I can see Suzaku shooting out his slash harkins. Um, so I really like uh, all of that and I just I love you know I I especially love in combat when you get little signals that kind of gives you more information about what's happening because I, I definitely think you can do a lot with visual storytelling for a fight but I mean you could even like you could have Suzaku like falling behind someone in the Lancelot, and to where he's overlapped and you can't see him. I don't know if this ever happens, but you, you so you couldn't see a, sl a slash Harkins, for example, since we're using this. Um, and you play that sound effect, and you see the one in front like bulge forward for a second or something. You'd know exactly what happened, right? Yes, I think there's actually specifically. I'm not sure exactly what scene it is, but I think there's a scene where a nightmare is obscured with smoke. Uh -huh. And you can hear the slash harkens before you see them. Yeah. So yeah, I, I just I absolutely love shit like that. I love it in video games too. But then also, you know, um, kind of like you were saying, I think, um, even like in in non combat, when a sound effect plays and it evokes like a very like strong emotional reaction from you, that's great, right? That is absolutely wonderful sound design. I think for whatever reason, sound in particular is, at least for me, it's easier to get an emotional reaction from me for a specific sound in isolation than like a specific image in isolation, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Like, there, it's very easy, especially with music, to get me in the right headspace if I was like to randomly hear a Pokemon song I liked, right? Right. And that, that would actually be better than me, like, seeing that route or something, right? Yeah. It, like, brings back more. The, it's, it's, it triggers more of the memories in my mind, thinking about the sound involved. Right. And I, I was going to kind of go back a little bit to the sound effects specifically for, like, the what the mech are doing. Like, the slash arcade noise or, like, the them engaging their, their wheels or something. Yeah. Or like the Varus noise. Um, it made me think about how Star Wars has like very distinctive noises for like how the blasters sound. And lightsabers. Lightsabers. Uh, the screaming that the, the TIE fighters do. These are all like, oh, yeah. it might be completely unique to Star Wars or there might be like other sci-fi stuff that has since 
taken that like sound design but that's just it, it goes to show how strong that sound design is like if other laser swords sound like lightsabers it's because lightsabers have such a distinct design about them even the sound of them is something that like carries over into other media right yeah so i i think it's stuff like that that i think makes code yes very uh unique uh-huh for sure is there's not at it has a it has a lot of its own identity which sounds kind of um tautological uh-huh. but what, what i mean is it, it, it makes itself unique it makes itself uh stand out with little elements like that right yeah um so yeah, that, that was kind of my long-winded explanation of why I think Code Geass really exemplifies anime. I mean, you could get into more stuff. Like, I think the the robots with the really intricate uh, 2D design, and even when they switch to CGI for, like, the Akito the Exiled stuff, which we'll talk about at some point, uh, Sunrise does a really good job of... It's, that's Sunrise Studios that makes Gundam and Code Geass, a few other shows cowboy bebop um that the the mechanical design is extremely strong in code geass i think even stronger than like some of the more recent gundam shows i've kind of complained about the the designs like not looking great animated or something or they look like off model or like there's not as much detail and i understand there's a bunch of elements that go into production there yeah but code geass consistently has these beautiful 2D animated mech, I think. Absolutely. And now I, I'm sure someone <laughs> could pick out some off-model frames for like the Lancelot or something that look goofy. But it, it, it looks so well in motion. And like you could pick up so many elements of like uh, the individual Sutherlands. And I love the like individual mech designs uh, kind of in the vein of Gundam. Of, uh -huh. like, there being models, like the Sutherland models and the Burai and whatever Cornelia's special knights are called. Uh-huh. I, I don't know. All that stuff kind Glass of... Glass on knights? Glass on? Glass... That, that's definitely the organization. I'm not sure if that's the mecha or not, but you know what I'm talking about with the lances. Yeah. They're called Gloucester knights, apparently. And so I think stuff like that, part of it is it builds like a it, it's part of world building it builds a more expansive setting yeah because like it's cool to have like the unique robots like the lancelot right yeah but it's also cool that i could see a sutherland and immediately be like oh that's a britannia nightmare frame that's you know uh you know as the series goes on gets a little outdated but by the time r2 go comes around it's really outdated and, like, you get to know the Sutherland as almost like its own character, I guess. Uh-huh. Which is something I really like. it, And um, I, I won't harp on it too much, but the guys at Sunrise, uh, there's, like, specific mecha designers that do work. Uh, like, they did the ship design for Cowboy Bebop, and they do, like, a lot of the... They do all the Gundam design, stuff like that. So I think two of the guys who worked on... Um, uh, Kogiasa's mecha design. One of them is uh, Kinji Teraoka, who did uh, a bunch of Gundam stuff, 
but uh, also did some mechanical design for Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I, I really like the the look there. And then the other person who I was gonna point out was uh, Akira Yasuda, who worked on uh, Gundam Reconquista in G, or however you say that name, uh, Reconquista. But I really love the uh, that Gundam design with the the antennas are more rabbit earish than normal. I think. Uh huh. That's uh, just something I like. Uh, but yeah, so those two had worked on Code Geass, and it's one reason I think that the the designs for the Code Geass mecha are all really strong for me. Uh huh. Is because I, I those designers make stuff I like. I, I'll have to say my favorite absolutely is um, Colin's uh, Gurren. That is such a cool mecha design for me. I really like it in in season two. Um, I I don't like its design as much in season one. It it, it doesn't feel like polished enough. I don't know. I I like that it's I like the the hand though and oh. how it kind of looks. Uh, it's it's so spiky. I guess. Yeah, I should I should say real quick though. Um, when I said I like it in season two, there's it's like actually they upgraded the mod like it's a new model of the Gurren. It's not um you know, it's not like a different character design from season one to season two. It's it's just a new model. Um I should just yeah, I didn't want that to sound like whatever. Anyway, you get it. <clears throat> Is it in season two it gets more of the orange elements and then obviously it has the float system? Yeah. Yeah yeah. So there's more like you said, with more orange, um I think it contrasts it better. I'm gonna pull it up right now. What I guess? Wait, is the? <laughs> oh, okay, maybe it is called the Mark Three. Yeah, the wings look really good with it as well. Um, for the, for the flight enabled one. I love the wings, and I I love that. That's something that, like, you get to see the development of it in the show. Whereas, like, first it's just the Lancelot who can fly. And then you get the other mecha that uh, you get uh, the Gwen that can fly. And then in R2, uh, the Black Knights develop the technology for the flight system. Yeah. And I, I really like seeing the development of that because uh, I, I don't know. It's cool. It's like a little aspect of like the the tech race that they're having. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I, that, I love that shit. And with the in the later part of the season, um Kind of both. So, Rakshada, I don't think this is too spoilery. Rakshada is basically the scientist on the side of the rebels. And Lloyd is the scientist on the side of Britannia. And towards the end of the season, they both have something that the others haven't, that the other hasn't figured out yet. And they're not sure how to, like, counter, you know? Um, and I think that's really cool. And it, it makes for more interesting. Um, it gives like an identity to each of the factions, I think. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and, and real quick, I just wanted to say with the uh, the season two, like flight enabled Gurren, um, its claw arm is like a darker gray, whereas the 
Gurren in season one, the Gurren, the first Gurren model that is prominently shown in season one, um, has like a light silvery arm that I just don't like. And so the dark gray kind of blends in better with the dark gray parts of, of Gurren. So it looks more natural. It looks like that arm's supposed to be there, I guess, you know? Yeah. I guess I always liked the, the asymmetrical look, like it was installed after the fact. I also really like when uh, I think both the Gurren and the Lancelot have to have a uh, a Sutherland arm installed at some point. Yeah, I but like. I will the... say the the Mark III with the uh, the golden finger blades is uh, a very eye catching design. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, fucking I like the Sutherland arm a little bit more than the weird silvery arm. Her fucking microwave arm. <laughs> I love it. I, I love uh, all the different ways it gets used, too. Like, I think when she first gets it, she uses it to uh, superheat the water in the mountain to start the landslide. Yeah. And then she, I, I think she uses it to stop, uh, like, physical projectiles. Uh, if she just grabs onto any part of a mecha, she just starts microwaving the entire thing. Yeah. From, like, whatever point she's grabbing, but then it, like, spreads out. Which is really cool. Yeah, and they turn into popcorn. Molten popcorn. What, what, what of the mecha design choices that I think really makes the show is actually the ejection pods. Yeah, that it's a very interesting and it's part. Uh, it's like a big part of the the mech itself. And so, yeah, the, the designs get very creative with how those ejection pods look especially for the like specialized models like the Gurren and the Lancelot and the Gawain and all that stuff the the mecha are a lot smaller than most other like popular mecha anime because like Gundam are huge yeah I think they're around 60 feet tall the Evas are around the same size um I I guess the the Mecha and Gurren Lagann start out at a bit about the same size as Nightmare Frames, uh-huh. but they get a lot bigger, obviously. There's a lot of size variants in Gurren Lagann. But yeah, so there's a lot smaller, so the cockpit is such a larger... It takes up more of the design. Uh-huh. But it, it's, it's cool because, one, it makes them kind of unique looking, but it, it plays such an important role in the story that I think is a cool crossover of like how the mecha was designed and how it affects the story, which is basically everyone has to eject from their mecha at some point. Yeah. So instead of the character just dying in battle or getting wounded in battle as often, what you get to see is, oh, they were defeated and they ejected from their mech, right? Right. And like, I could see people kind of complain about that as like, uh, you, you get villains getting reused uh-huh. sometimes. Yeah. But to be honest, I-, I think there is more of an interesting element for Code Geass keeps a lot of the, the characters throughout the series, right? Yeah. And, and it that keeps makes them relevant thing- in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes things interesting because it's not always like, it's not always are you strong enough to beat them in Code Geass. More often than not, it's do you have the setting and 
the resources and like the placement and the strategy um, for that particular fight. So yeah, I think the the strategy of it all is is a very very large part of the show and of the combat. And it's not about like checking off. Oh, we killed that Britannian ace pilot, and we killed that Britannian general, and now you get like going down the list and just right. you know, beating enemies. Yeah, so in that way, it's very much not a shonen. I think like a battle shonen. Yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I should have said Battle Shonen. Oh, hey, real quick. Yes? Do you want to do, like, a brief summary or description of what Code Geass is about? Because I don't, I don't think we did that. Okay, yeah. Um, Did you have a, a summary? And then I can add okay, yeah, sure. my thoughts. So, Code Geass is a show about a former prince turned exile... Um, who is disguising himself as just a normal Britannian student, is trying to completely demolish Britannia, who acts as this, like, world-conquering governmental body that wants to, like, literally dominate everyone, and then they turn your country into just a number. So they turn Japan into Area 11, and they start calling their those people... 11s and not Japanese, which is very like dehumanizing, and they're treated as like you know subclass or sub. Um, what is the word I'm looking for? I don't know. They're they're treated like fucking peasants, right? And uh, often I think you know they're they're fucking slaves to Britannia, who's like if you're Britannian, then you're a just a higher class citizen by default. Um, and so there already are existing rebel groups, and the show starts when Lelouch enters as a viable um, opponent to Britannia, and it kind of picks up from there, and there's a lot of strategy involved. Um, there's kind of this ongoing chess metaphor uh, with Lelouch being the king, because he's like commanding his, his, his faction, we'll say. Um, and, you know, all of his pawns. And, uh... I'm going off the rails a bit. I'm high. Odias is... Japan fighting a Britannian empire that's actually based out of America with robots. Yes. And it's about people's identity... And like the mask they wear, and like the the secrets they hold about, uh, like something that makes up their identity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's the obvious example of Lelouch, who moonlights as the vigilante slash rebel leader, uh, Zero, right? Right. And he has like a a, a whole costume, and he has a, a voice changer. And he has to keep it, keep that separate from his life as Lelouch. But it's interesting because Lelouch is already living a like a fake life because he's not Lelouch v. Britannia at the start of the story. He's Lelouch Lamperouge, and he's trying to hide the fact that he's a Britannian prince, right? Yeah. 
So I would say primarily the story is about like mask as like a central theme. Yeah. And you can, I guess we'll, we'll save Charles's motivations for season two since that's really only talked about in season two. But like, so you have Lelouch, like we talked about in Zero, and then Colin and her double life is a rebel, right? Yeah. And how that's a secret. And then there's Suzaku, and there's his his secret that he killed his father, but also sort of his secret that he's the one piloting the Lancelot. Yeah, because he doesn't tell his friends at school, and he doesn't Yeah, he tell says Lelouch. he's working at, a, at an engineering part of the army, right? Like, right. He implies that that's, like, non-combat. Yeah, yeah. And it becomes a big deal when the pilot of the Lancelot is a uh, Japanese person, right? Yeah. Suzaku is uh, an honorary Britannian, so he's like a step above 11s, but it's he's still second class compared to people who are born Britannian. So it's a, it's a big deal that Suzaku's the pilot. But it's all these little things, even like uh, the Mao arcs, I think. And we might be able to get into this later as its own topic or right now. I don't know. But Mao's like mind reading ability is the ability to take the mask off people. Yeah. And then there's even stuff like C2 being secretive about her past, you know, or her having forgotten her past. But she does know some of it and she's still like secretive of it. Uh, that's like her mask to wear. And then like Shirley ends up having to keep secrets and... Millie and Rivals might be the only characters that don't have to keep secrets. Yeah. I guess Millie has a small secret that isn't super detrimental to the plot for the most part. That um, the Ashford family, her family, which is like a, a family with some level of royalty and uh, respect, is like, quote unquote, dying out um, in, in popularity and shit and like notoriety so uh then leads into you know one of the plot points that she ends up having like or is going to have an arranged marriage with good old lloyd which is such an excellent character oh man i love lloyd i mean he's he's a cockhead sometimes but uh a cockhead he's a dickhead sometimes but you know he's it's in a fucking, I don't know. I don't know how to put that, but I, I love Lloyd. I have a feeling that like Lloyd and Millie are actually a good match personality wise. Yeah, that they're both they both like push other people's buttons a lot. Yeah, for sure. I don't think like their their interests align, and obviously Lloyd is like very hyper fixated on his his like job. Yeah. And, you know, the other th good thing about that would be if they were to, like, want to be a couple is, um, is Millie would be able to kind of, like, keep him in line when he's getting a little too, uh, sociopathic or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, what, what, don't they say in the show that he's, like, diagnosed with something? Um, is that not ringing any bells for you? I don't know if they ever specifically give him a diagnosis, but there's definitely a lot of, like, Cecile saying uh, that Lloyd's a dick, basically. Yeah. 
Okay, I guess at some point he just self-proclaims himself to be a sociopath. So, I mean, he's probably not, like, actually, but, you know, he is, um, he does kind of have that, like, completely unfiltered sort of, kind of missing some social cues, I guess. Yes, and I love that about him so much. Yeah, exactly. That's that's uh, definitely a huge reason, like why his character is so great. Um, probably the main reason, I would say, um, because he he contrasts so well to like Cecile and then also Suzaku, who I I think are both very like earnest and honest people, and they are also very nice. Um, which is, and, and polite, which is kind of what contrasts with, with Lloyd's fucking, you know, slamming his dick on the table all the time. Not actually, <laughs> but, you know, just metaphorically. <laughs> if only him and Nina could have something in common. Besides the Oh pops. my god. <laughs> fucking, ugh, don't get me started on Nina. <sighs> I hate Nina. I. Why do you hate Nina? <laughs> because she's like, racist. Well, she's racist. She in even if she weren't, she's still annoying as fuck with like how she, like, the words she chooses to speak, are just always disrespectful to me for whatever reason. <laughs> they're disrespectful to some character they're disrespectful to suzaku they're disrespectful to lelouch they're fucking like you know shitting on millie shitting on shirley shitting on ribbles it's just like she plays this little fucking oh oh i'm so shy but then like every fucking chance she gets she's like you're fucking shit your ass you're garbage and it's like bro you're not shit and you can't handle shit and you fucking crumble to your knees and cry. Like, shut up. Shut your fucking back. I do like her more in R2 when the uh, the nuke stuff gets more uh, exploration. I wish she was fucking put in an enclosed space with the radiation <laughs> from that nuke. Uh, I do, like, I hate her, but I love to hate her. You know what I mean? I mean... Kinda. I I just I really wish I I would say that more passionately if we just got to see her fucking neck snap, right? <laughs> that would be the best. Then she'd be like my favorite character. <laughs> oh, there's only one favorite character in Code Geass, and it's Lelouch. That's true. But right, listen, Suzaku's got some great things going for him. But his ideology of, like, he's he preaches that he's like, oh, you know, like, the the methods over the results, right? Like, if you, if you get good results but you use bad methods, that's no bueno. But, you know, you, you gotta always uh, use good methods, even if they don't always lead to good results, is, I, I think, kind of his mindset. Um... But the problem is, and, and like, I'd, I'd agree with it to a certain extent. I, I don't know if, like, fully. I don't know if I want to commit and say all the time. But I, I'm, I'm generally a journey over destination kind of guy. I'm generally 
a you should do things like in a good way and not be scummy, I guess. And and not like fuck other people over. Um but yeah, but listen, working for Britannia with what the with the shit they do with the with the fucking oppressing people like literally making them you know subclass citizens they're actually that's coded into the law to discriminate against non-britannians um and yeah how they just fucking like take over like every single country they can pretty much um or that's what it seems like and you know um it's sort of implied that they specifically went after countries that had the uh yeah the ruins for the gia stuff yeah but, but I, yeah, I don't they think own the general at least a third of the world yeah yeah i don't think the general public know about the that shit which is why i didn't bring it up but so yeah it's just like with the way that britannia is i don't think that like a reasonable person should think hey i can work my way up and make you know start making good changes right especially as an 11 <laughs> <laughs> I I definitely think that Suzaku shows a interesting point of view as far as like the question of revolution versus like gradual interior change. Uh-huh. Because I think Lelouch highlights all of the negatives of revolution, right? Right. It's violent, it gets people he do- doesn't want to be killed, killed. Uh, you know, not everything always goes the way he wants it to. And because of this, like, some of his ends justifies the means doesn't matter if he doesn't get the means he wants, right? Yeah. He can't predict the future. He wants to believe that he can plan out the future, but his plans falling apart are some of the, like, best moments for Lelouch, I think. Yeah, definitely. When these, but yeah, I do think Suzaku is deluded to think that Britannia can change. However, having said that, Euphemia did have the right idea, right? Yeah. Like, Yuffie was going to do exactly what Suzaku wanted, basically. Uh huh. Which was like a, a change from the inside. And like, Luge kind of points out that it wouldn't go perfectly and that, like, you know, there's there's going to be like strings attached that you don't know about right now. Yuffie doesn't have all the power in the Britannian empire. Right. But I like that. Yeah. It it was kind of showed that Suzaku almost could have gotten what he wanted. Right. But Lelouch has, the thing is, is Lelouch, that's not his goal, right? His goal isn't making a better Japan. His goal isn't making, uh, you know, a better country or something, right? Uh-huh. His ambition is revenge against the Britannian Empire. Yeah. It's something I really like as far as the conflict between Suzaku and Lelouch because there is the the question of, uh, you know, means versus ends and what methods they use. Yeah. But there's also just the complete... Lelouch has a completely different goal in mind that Suzaku does really. Yeah. I mean, he, that's even like one of the first things you hear him say, I think is, is like, or at least it's in the first episode, they flash back to Suzaku and Lelouch's kids and Lelouch says, then why don't you just obliterate Britannia? 
So yeah, the man wants to obliterate Britannia. But one thing I do like is that both Suzaku and Lelouch's goals would have ended up with, if they had succeeded, ended up with the world that not only that Lelouch wants not only to live in. I mean, I I don't think that like. I don't know. I don't, I don't think Suzaku's results without Lelouch's stuff um, amounted to enough. Cause, but like if Suzaku and Yuffie gentle people had created their gentle world, I think that's what Nunley would have wanted, right? Oh, well, I mean, yeah. Well, unrestricted, I think for sure. But I think Lelouch takes it a a step further. There is the gentle world he wants to create, right? Yeah. But he deludes himself into, like, the the good aspect of that, that he wants to create this gentle world for his little sister, right? Yeah. But he also wants to basically kill off the Britannian Empire so that they don't end up hurting Lelouch or Nunnally, right? Yeah. Because he doesn't know who killed his mother. Right. So I like that there's kind of a different layer and goals there. And like Lelouch is worrying about something that Nunnally doesn't really worry about, at least in the first season. And like Suzaku is not as concerned about, doesn't think about. Yeah. That I I think builds the conflict in more of an interesting way that Lelouch has kind of unspoken goal. He does speak about destroying Britannia, right? Yeah. But like he deludes himself into being like more noble sometimes, and then other times I think, and as the show progresses, he realizes more and more that he's like a necessary demon. Yeah, and I, I like that. I, I like the whole. Yeah, I, I really like Lelouch's philosophy of you know only those who are prepared to kill should kill. Yeah, and I I think prepared to be. He killed. takes that. Yes, he takes that as seriously for himself as anyone else right right he doesn't like he doesn't value his life except for the aspect of getting the results he needs yeah and that that's why i think lelouch's ends justifies the the means thing is kind of more acceptable yeah i, uh, I don't think well go ahead i'll, I'll say what i'll say because it's, it's kind of big i guess because he lives and justifies the means, right? Like yes. he, he doesn't just talk and justifies the means to like justify something that bad he's doing. And it's like he lives the 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 philosophy of he's ready to die for his cause, right? Yeah. But what were you gonna say? Oh, I was gonna say I think that Lelouch definitely in season one the only like part of of being Lelouch versus being Zero that he cares about is like time with Nunnally, right? And besides yeah. that, he's like he's disinterested in school. He has like no other hobbies. He's constantly thinking about um, like the best moves he can be making um, for his goals as Zero. Like he everything he does in his personal life is like designed on a schedule to best suit like maximum efficiency for zero and the black knights even before he has the black knights thing 
it he is very disinterested in just about everything you're right yeah and but you know like even so like if someone's gonna spend all of their time doing something they're you know obviously their other interests aren't very interesting (laughs) yes I, i think you could even say before he got the chance to become zero he was playing chess against noblemen gambling right yeah i i think what his perspective of it was was he was matching like strategic and tactical wits against uh britannian nobility yeah he was building up like his his skills when he actually had to fight britannia however that was going to be he's he's the living embodiment of He's playing chess and y'all playing checkers or whatever, or whatever the saying is. I don't know, whatever <laughs> the meme is. He is playing. He do be playing chess though. He do be playing chess. Um, you think it's time to go over the voice staff? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Let's do it. All right, Lucia's voice. Uh, his Japanese. These are all Japanese voice actors. We watched it subbed, not dubbed. The dub isn't horrible, but I really can't stand Nunnally's English voice. And uh, honestly, I think the performance is just better in the Japanese voice acting anyway. I agree with that. Just across the board. And I'll I'll say a little bit more about that when we get into some of the plot points. Okay, so Lelouch's voice is Jun Fukuyama, uh, who's also known, uh, he's the voice of the main character for Persona 5. And, uh, Yukio Okamura, which is the the Glasses brother in Blue Exorcist, and uh, Yuta from Chunibyo, who's the main character from Chunibyo Love and Other Delusions. Oh, I like me. So yeah, very, very strong VA there. Um, there's Sichu. Her voice actress's name is Yakuna. Uh, she's known uh, for Cecilia Alcott, which is the blonde girl in Affinite Stratos. And she is also Kale and I believe Kefla in Dragon Ball Super. So I'm sure we'll talk about her eventually again. Uh, we have Suzaku's voice, which is Takahiro Sakurai. Uh, he's known for Despa and Ranking of Kings. I'd like to point out here, we talked about Dragon Ball Superhero and the English voice actor for Despa uh, for the Dragon Ball Superhero episode. This is the obviously the Japanese voice for Despa. In Ranking of Kings. Yeah. And uh, he's also uh, Tentamon and Digimon. Oh. Uh, Colin's voice actress is Ami Koshimizu. She's known as uh, Yukiko in Persona 4. And there's a couple more. I don't want to waste too much time on this. But uh, Millie's voice actress, who's also the voice for Child Lelouch. Her name is Sayaka Ohara. And she is uh, Irisville. Von Eisburn and Fate Zero, which I would love to watch with you eventually. Hell. And then uh, Valetta's voice, and who's also the voice for Child Suzaku. Uh, her name is Akino Wat- Watanabe, I think. Uh, and she's known for the voice of uh, Rin Okamura from Blue Exorcist, the main character from Blue Exorcist. Did you um, did you mention oh, that um that Suzaku's voice actor voices Cloud Strife? Oh no, I didn't. Damn. 
Yeah, that's a good one. Also, so yes, uh, oh, Takahiro Sakurai, uh, Suzaka's voice does uh, Cloud Strife. Fuck yeah, from Final Fantasy VII. Pop, 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 And look, dude, you're looking at the pictures of the voice actors, right? Uh, I'm looking at Takahiro Sakurai right now, yeah. Okay, well, we'll go to Ribbles. And I guess, <laughs> send me the link, because, or no, I'll send, you know, I'll just send you mine. We're, we're gonna cut out this. Hold on, sorry. Okay. Okay, look at, look at Ribbles' fucking voice actor, and tell me that's not just Ribbles. <laughs> he's kind of got that expression on his face like he's Ribbles. <laughs> exactly! And even, like, his, their skin color is shown to be just slightly more tan, right? And, like, he's got the same hairstyle, pretty much. I mean, his doesn't <laughs> swoop as much, but, you know. Um, yeah. The non-anime version of that hairstyle. He's got brown eyes. Dude, come on, that's Ribbles. <laughs> I always... I wonder what, like, Ribbles... I, I want to know more about Ribbles as a character, as far as, like, all of the other student council members get, like, some fleshing out. Yeah, and Rivals is just always the guy who hung, hangs out with Lelouch and drives him to his fucking chess matches. Yeah, and you see him working as I think like a bartender at some point. Yeah, but like you don't really get more about that. It's like he has a crush on Millie, and that that's it. I would love to hear more about like uh, since he's like implied to be like a poor Britannian. Uh huh. Uh, I, I think that would be interesting to look yeah. into. Because, like, Millie's nobility, Shirley's uh, dad is a general, stuff like that. Yeah. Nina's a fucking stupid bitch. <laughs> what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, and then if you look at Schneisel, Schnei, Schneisel's, Schneisel, if you look at Schneisel's voice actor, um, they're, like, opposites, completely. Damn, look at that hair, though. I, it's gorgeous. And I'm not talking about Schneisel. <laughs> Norihiro Inoue? Yeah. Um, he has a role in Detective Conan. Uh, he's a character I don't recognize from Najima. <laughs> like that he's credited as a bus driver in Rosario Vampire. <laughs> Twice! He's always the voice actor. He's always the voice actor for the bus driver. Wow. Anyway, um... Jeremiah's voice actor is Ken Narita, who's uh, known for voicing uh, Sashomaru from Inuasha. Sashomaru. Sashomaru, there you go. And uh, finally, last, but definitely not least, and actually probably my favorite voice actor, just period, Charles V. Britannia is voiced by Norio Wakamoto, who voices also Cell from Dragon Ball and uh, Richard Helsing from Helsing. Hell yeah. He's also Nobunaga in the uh, Nobunaga's Ambition video game. Not that I know many people who've played that, but he does such a good villain voice. He has this deep, gravelly voice, and the way he does Charles's voice, even though you don't get a lot of Charles... In uh, season one, uh, like at all his laugh every time he's, you know, just on screen talking for any reason, it sounds it's the perfect voice for Code Geass because it's a, a such a theatrical voice, right? Yeah. 
I love me some Norio Wakamoto. Hell yeah. Did you mention Kaguya's voice actor? Actress? Ah, uh, damn. That, uh, I was trying to cut down on the number of uh, side characters. Yeah. Because, uh... But yeah, so Kaguya's voice actress is Mika Kanai, who did Satoko's voice in Higurashi. Yeah, that's what I want to say. That's what I wanted to mention, yeah. Yeah, so that there's a, a link back to uh, Higurashi. There's so many side characters that I, I could really go on forever. I tried yeah, to yeah. do a quick once-over um, as far as uh, voice actors who had voiced some other character that we had already talked about. But yes, thank you for catching Sato go for me. No problem. And you can oh. move that um, to before you mentioned uh, Big Boy Emperor Charles. Well, now I've got another one since okay. I was just clicking through them anyway. Um, Satomi Arai, who is uh, Sayoko's voice, right? Yeah. She is Susie Stolas and Welcome to Demon School of Hurricane. Hell yeah. So th there you go. There, there's some connections back to uh, previous episodes. And I'm sure we're going right. to see some of these voice actors and actresses again. Uh, so yeah, that, that was all the cast stuff I had prepared. Cool. Um, just so that we can make the connections with anything we watch at a later date. Yeah. And really just, again, great voice cast. Uh, did you want to kind of transition into like C2's performance as far as... This was the first time you had watched the sub, was that right? Yep. So and you feel like C2's performance is more emotional? Oh, yeah. And uh, also, another big part of it is um, is the dialogue of the subtitled version versus the dialogue of the English dub. And how, like, word choice can really imply different feelings towards something or, or even different actions. Right. Right. Um, and so I, I saw a lot of that in like, definitely in the early parts. Damn, I was supposed to write some down, but I remember Suzaku at one point pretty early on saying something like, I like, I'm appreciative of you zero that you're like helping out Japanese and, and they look up to you and stuff like that. And in the subtitled version, it sounds like he actually appreciates Zero to some extent. And also, I should say, he follows it up with, but I don't approve your methods, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but in the English dub, it really comes off as like, uh, I guess I should be appreciative that, like, you're fucking being good for Japanese people, but uh, fuck you, fuck your methods. Like that's how it comes off in the English dub to me. And the sub, it it actually like gen legitimately sounds like Suzaku can admit that there are some good things that Zero Zero is doing. Um, so that that's like one thing that stuck out to me. Um, a big thing about the subtitled version that changed for me. Um, and this is also like I I don't want to say this is all just because I watched it subtitled. I think it's also because it's been a long time since I've watched a show all the way through. And on top of that, the very first time I watched it all the way through, um, I was like a child. I don't remember how young I was, but I was probably like a young teenager. Um, so my, you know, when you watch something when you're a kid and then you, when you rewatch it later, I don't know if you ever do this, but 
you like you're not really absorbing everything. You could still miss details because you're like sitting waiting there for the next thing you remember, right? Like, oh, I can't wait for this to happen, or you know, kind of like subconsciously. So I I think like even though I've watched Code Geass through like three or four times before this. I don't think I really absorbed everything until I watched it this time, really going into the mindset of like, okay, let me see what I really, really like about Code Geass. And that combined with watching the subtitles made episodes 14 and 15, which I believe are like the first two episodes of like the Mao arc, you could say. Um, right. Those really made me realize that C2 for me is like the main love interest of the show. And I think originally, the first few times I watched it, I think I thought that she didn't really have um, romantic feelings for Lelouch until they started developing, like, late season two, or, like, halfway through season two or something. Um, But now I realize that, I, I mean, it was literally right in front of my face. I mean, there's literally the conversations she has in her head that you later figure out are with... And you can bleep that out if you want to. <laughs> um, the conversation she has in her head with those is like telepathy or whatever you want to call that. Um, uh, C2 is like speaking out loud and she's like, I don't remember what she says, but it, it's pretty much like, I don't like him. Ooh, ooh. You know, I mean, it's, it's come on, you know, she she had the the hots for him early on in season one. Right. Um yeah. One and- thing I think is that the some of the nuance of like her performance for C two is kind of lost in the English performance. Yeah, as sort of more of a generic like emotionless anime girl voice. Right. Which, yeah, I-, I won't rag on English voice actors too much here, but uh, I definitely think the the Japanese voice for C two, uh, she does such a great job of giving you little subtle bits of emotion while still maintaining like an emotionless girl sound almost yeah and Which so it's kind of contradictory but go ahead well yeah and so that's what makes the subtleness of it great right yeah um like it, it's the way in which it's subtle is loud <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah the contrast well, makes it more noticeable Right, and and while we're talking about episodes 14 and 15, and then by extension 16, um, I think I, I was kind of going back and forth earlier, and I said uh, episode 14. Okay, so the setup to this is I think the the show writers, artists, you know, who, whoever was, was thinking up the, the plots for each episode, um, I think they fucking love shipping and romance and stuff because i think 14 was like your lelouch and shirley shipping episode and then 15 was your rightfully so lelouch and c2 uh moments and then 16 you kind of get like some bromance with with suzaku it's like and this rounds out the arc and you also get um just to see how much of an unstoppable force Lelouch and Suzaku are when they are working together because Suzaku is very much I I don't think we've said this yet in this episode Suzaku is very much a 
very physically capable person. His reaction times are like super quick and um, he's a very good nightmare pilot and he's just like, I mean, he's like the grandson of, of the last samurai. Right. Um, and yeah, it shows in, in his absolute physical prowess. Uh, and, and you could say he's, he's pretty tactically minded too. Um, and then whereas Lelouch is, is very much like the, the strategy God. Um, so you put them together and, and Lelouch is not at all very physical. Um, so yeah, you put them together and then they become fucking unstoppable. Um, so yeah, I, I really, I really like that Mao arc, even though, oh, and another great thing from the Mao arc is that you get to see some great character development. Um, well, not, well, I do think some character development in general for C2, but what I more meant was that you get to see her character fleshed out a little bit more with her past and what she's like tried in the past and how Lelouch is like not the first one she's made a deal with. And you get to see how that kind of unfolded. And definitely, I think you can very clearly see how she fucked up so bad with Mal. I think the Mal arc gets a lot of hate for kind of like people think it's like filler or whatever. And it was taken out of the, uh, the remake films. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, but I think it might have just been cut more for um, runtime than anything else. But because the films obviously have to condense a lot of content down into a much shorter runtime. Yeah. Um, but the Mal arc gives you exposition on the Gios without having to just, you know, have a character tell you the exposition exposition right yeah it that... gives you kind of foreshadowing for the coat the geos too as far as what eventually happens to lelouch right and what were you gonna say and that um i'm pretty sure that's the first time that the viewer would realize that geos can be something else other than the specific kind of geos lelouch has yeah especially because geos i think it's I want to say it's Scottish and basically just means command, or at least that's the command spell in, um, in Dungeons and Dragons. Let me hmm. see real quick. Irish. It's a, um, like a taboo, but it, um, it's like an obligation for like, you can't do something. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, that's, uh, Kuchalin is an Irish folk hero hero that uh, ends up under a uh, gyas to never eat uh, dog meat. Yeah. So I do think Mao shows it's not it's not about the giant robots that most of the show is about, right? Yeah. But the show isn't really just about giant robots. It's about Lelouch and Suzaku and like their secrets and their like conflicting ideals more than the giant robots, right? Yeah. So I think the the Mao arc is really what shows off like the aspect of the show that I think I get the most enjoyment out of and not just in Code Geass, but like any sort of work. And what I mean by that is where the character has a secret they have to keep like a double identity uh-huh. i don't know it's always something that really works for me it's i like the uh 
the irony, and I mean irony in the sense of the audience realizes something that one of the characters on screen doesn't. Yeah. The the dramatic irony of something like Suzaku telling Lelouch to his face that he hates Zero and Lelouch is secretly Zero, but Suzaku doesn't know that. Yeah. And I I think it, it gives you... All those little elements build up to a reveal in Code Geass, right? Like the reveal at the end of season one, it's not some big fight, or the thing that ends season one isn't some big fight. It's not like uh, a a battle like everything else in the show's been. It's just Suzaku figures out who Zero is, right? Yeah. And Colin. And I say just, but it's such... At that point, it's such a big part of all the characters' motivations and everything. Right. Like, Collins gets thrown out of, like, she gets thrown out of her motivation. She gets thrown off by the fact that Zero is Lelouch. Yeah. Suzaku, you know, realizes that a friend basically, like, betrayed him almost. Yeah. And the same way that when Lelouch finds out that the pilot of the Lancelot is Suzaku, it like breaks him. Yeah. So the, the thing about the Mao arc for me is that it's uh it's the like Mao unmasking things. It's Mao unmasking Lulush to Shirley. Right. Mm-hmm. It's C2 kind of losing her mask for Lelouch. Yeah. And then it's like the Suzaku killing his father that gets revealed. Oh him. Yeah. So he's like the, if if Lelouch is the king of mask and Mao is the unmasker sort of deal. Uh-huh. So I, I do really appreciate the Mao arc, and I think uh, on this rewatch, it's something that I enjoyed a lot more, whereas on previous watches, I had just, you know, thought, oh, this is the part where uh, they aren't in robots, right? Yeah. Which is, there's a lot of this show that's not in robots, and I think they're all really strong parts of the show. Even like the little slice of life bits, even the bit that's just like Arthur stealing Zero's helmet. Yeah. I think that's actually maybe the first episode of Code Geass I ever saw was that on Adult Swim. That's funny. Damn, I didn't even know this ran on Adult Swim. Yes, it did. <laughs> okay, so let's see. I'm kind of going through this points I wanted to talk about. Uh, I guess I could mention this real quick. So just to give Suzaku some more buffs, um, I really, you know, one of the things that's so appealing about Suzaku's character is how excellent of a, of a divicer he is piloting the Lancelot. And he has like such an excellent fighting style. He's super adaptable, which goes very well with his like fucking breakneck reaction times. Um, yeah, you see in the Mao arc that he's like, these fucking security turrets have a lag of 0.05 seconds. So let me just run through the hallway and kick it off the fucking roof. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, it just, that, that shit's great. It really comes through, um, with like crazy countering and shit that he pulls off and uh yeah i would just say in general he's very agile um and then like conversely so colin ends up being like the black knight's like 
crack shot pilot. But starting out, she's like, she's not on the level that Suzaku is. Um, but what I think gives her an edge over a lot of pilots is that she starts out like super aggressive. Um, like her fucking fighting style is very much, I just need to fucking go ahead and attack and, you know, as, as quickly as I can to end this. I mean, obviously she listens to zero if zero is like, hold, you know, wait, go do this, right? But um, she's very loyal to Zero. Um, she works really well with Zero because Zero is very micromanagey of his his troops. Yeah, and so he can say, hey, go take out this target, and she's like, got it, bam, there you go. Right, and I almost think, like, she, like, she develops her skills on her own, but I think the, the fact that she works under Zero is really what takes her, uh, like, it gives her more strategic sense as the, the show goes on. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting type of character development to see. Yeah. You de- you definitely don't see that a lot. I mean, maybe I don't watch enough shows where people are, like, being commanded like a military, but, um, you know, still, it is interesting to see that character interaction. Oh, uh, well, okay, that gets kind of spoilery. Um, did you want to talk about chess metaphors and Zero's costume design? Yes. So, Zero's costume is obviously based on the Black King. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was kind of thinking about that today as far as, do you think that Zero is stylized as the Black Faction in, like, the Black Knights are the Black Faction for chess, and kind of as the opposite of the White Faction in Britannia. And I was kind of thinking in the sense of, in chess, White moves first. And do you think Lelouch was sort of implying there that, you know, he's just reacting to the evils of Britannia, more or less? They, they shot first. He's just, you know, defending himself, more or less. Yeah, I think so. And I and I do absolutely fucking adore Zero's Black King cos costume. Uh, <laughs> fucking Black King, hell yeah! <laughs> but um, yeah, it's great. Um, and what else? Do you have anything else to say about that? I guess not particularly. I I don't think there's a lot of there's a lot of chess being used as you know a metaphor for battle. Yeah, and like chess being used as a metaphor for like command and stuff like Lelouch saying that the king should always move first is obviously like a a metaphor for his style of leadership. Lelouch doesn't. He stays back to an extent, but he's always in the fight. He's always participating in some way. Even yeah. when like he's not in the fighting, he's normally doing something that's important for his plan, right? Yeah. So he, he's a very active leader, and he takes that philosophy seriously. And yeah. I think that's what makes him like a both a fun main character and like a fun like villainous character mm-hmm. is that he's always up to something. Right. Do you want to 
go ahead and transition into the spoiler section. Okay, from here on, there may be spoilers. Booyah! I mean, Code Geass has been out for a while, so, you know, booyah. Uh, if, if you get spoiled by something for Code Geass, you probably haven't seen it at all. Um, you probably won't watch it, but hopefully we can talk you into watching it with what we've said so far. But if you haven't seen it, go ahead and uh, cut this off if you're afraid of spoilers. Booyah. Booyah. So first thing I want to mention is the scene in episode 24 when Ogi is talking to Valletta in Lelouch and Nunnally's room at the school. Like in their fucking dorm room or whatever. And there's a white and a black origami crane, you know, sitting, standing beautifully on the dining room table facing each other close. And you have this interaction with Valletta and Ogie. And Valletta like shoots Ogie in the side and he fucking keels over and it pans out. And you don't even see the motion. You just see the black crane is knocked over. And this is beautiful foreshadowing um, for the very next episode in episode 25 when Lelouch and Suzaku are facing off. And Suzaku, they've, well, they've all got guns, right? All three, all three of them in that situation, which the third one being Colin. I think they all have guns. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do. So it's a right good shootout. And, uh, yeah, so I, I think that's pretty pretty cool. I, I like how it's kind of with the going with the chess metaphor again, it's all framed as like a, a match of chess and season one ends when Lelouch gets captured. Yeah. Oh, damn, it does! And then the fucking episodes are called stages, and then in season two they're called turns. <laughs> 25 turns. Is that is that like a... Is that an average length of a chess match, do you think? Or do you think that's, like, on the high end? Or the low end? That seems kind of on the low end, huh? I don't know. About 40 moves, someone says. I guess it, it definitely will probably depend on ELO. Um... Low ELO apparently averages 25 moves. I don't think it was an intentional... Uh, reference, but that is kind of silly. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking low elo scrubs. No, but, um, yeah, I, I, I like that the episodes are like turn one, turn two. Um, that's really cool. And yeah, I didn't think about that. Lelouch gets captured and it ends. Wow. Or season one ends. Yeah, that's fucking great. And then you get season two. Ooh, woo. So I, I was gonna harp a little more on the, uh, the paper crane symbolism before we got more into spoilers. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it said somewhere, maybe by Nunnally, about folding the cranes having to do with wishes. Yeah. And so one, Nunnally's always folding cranes, right? That's like almost every time you see her actually doing anything, she's doing the origami cranes. Yeah. Which I like it as like, Nunnally has this dream world of this gentle world, this peaceful world. Yeah. And like her, her blindness and her, her not being able to walk are psychosomatic, right? They're not physical injuries. Right. 
it has to do more with like the the shock of her mother dying yeah rather than like actually physically damaging her spine or something and so it's like it's the wishful thinking for this this world where she would be able to see again right yeah and not like you know because she's not physically blind but a world where she would be able to accept seeing again right and kind of to tie into that you know how the the gyas symbol uh kind of looks like a bird and kind of does like a flapping thing when it when it like shoots out of the eye oh yeah yeah uh, so I, I've always thought of that as like a, a bird thing, but it kind of talking about the cranes and the wishes thing, it makes me realize the connection between like the, the Gias's Lelouch's wish forced onto someone basically. Uh-huh. And that's, you know, the paper crane is a wish. And so there's kind of a connection there. That's cool. Hell yeah. Uh, what, what else would be big spoilers? Big spoilers. Um, anything about, like... Oh, so the fucking... Dude, the Gephion disturbers? Disturbers? I love those. The the disabled uh, Sakuradite reactors? Yeah. And, uh, nightmares? Uh-huh. Yeah, I really like how it's a big plot point that they, they set up a plan to capture the Lancelot to be studied. Yeah. I like how... Uh, Sayoko gets involved in that. I like how she gets recruited into the Black Knights, kind of uh, being unaware of Lelouch's zero. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> but like, I think it it like lines up with like if she supports Lelouch and Nunnally, she likes and knows their identity, which I assume she does. I'm pretty sure Sayoko knows. Uh, I think that's why she's Japanese. Is that I think she was at some point part of the original staff that uh were with Lucian Nunnally. Might be completely wrong about that. Hmm. But like it, it, it fits to me that like if she cared about Nunnally and Lelouch, she would be sympathetic with the Black Knights. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's kind of a cool element near the end there. <sighs> Valetta shooting Ogi, just the entire thing with Valetta regaining her memories feels weird to me. But yeah. I guess it was weird that she lost them in the first place, so whatever. I kind of just wish she'd stayed with her lost memories. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Her character's kind of weird. I feel like comparing like her character path and Jeremiah's character path, I really love Jeremiah's character path. Yeah. Like, throughout season one, he just gets completely broken down, and then you get him as like a, a surprise bonus boss at the end when he's a boss. cyborg hell yeah and he, he gets basically fucking, just comes out of nowhere he gets his amazingly unique mech uh that's like a fucking i, I don't even just know like a floating star it. it's yeah. not even really yeah, like yeah. A, a humanoid mecha it's like a, a spaceship almost i love it and his fucking like cockpit room thing uh it's great I love all the, the tubes that come out of his back and everything. It's always such a cool... Uh, I, I love the mecha cockpits that do that. Yeah. You definitely talk about uh, C2 talking to Marianne, even though I think that might still not really be revealed in Season 1. It's revealed in Season 2. She says Marianne. And oh, does she? Yeah. So, 
a couple things about that. One, so Marion was teasing C2 about liking Lelouch. Yeah. That makes sense, right? What was Marion doing with teleporting uh, Yuffie, Lelouch, uh, Suzaku, and Colin to the other island? I don't know, playing ship shipping simulator? <laughs> you think she was just trying to pair them off? Yes. <laughs> well, and you know, it works out too, because that's kind of like, that's kind of how I'd pair them off. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Yuffie and Suzaku's relationship, and I think they are a better pair. But like, just like taking their personalities on like a surface level, um, I, I don't think, I don't think Lelouch and Colin mess, mesh at all on like a personal level. Uh, they mesh perfectly in the like professional setting, you know, but yeah, I think personality wise, they would not be friends. Um, I think there's more Colin Lelouch shipping in season two, whereas season one's definitely Shirley C2 um a little bit of yuffie yeah but yeah so and then fucking yuffie and lelouch are you know they're cute and they have history i wonder almost do you think so charles is definitely shown to like be approving of all of the monstrous shit that lelouch does yeah do you think marianne was trying to give lelouch like a a soft uh answer to his problems with euphemia like do you think her teleporting yuffie and lelouch off to that island to talk for a little bit is kind of like setting up for yuffie's uh special zone of nippon yeah you know uh now that you put it like that i think that's i think that's very compelling because I've always interpreted it as, especially like as you see them in season two more, that Charles and Marianne were very much of the same mind. But like coming to think about it and watching it and like having the knowledge in my head in the forefront of my brain that C2 is talking to Marianne the entire time. Uh-huh. It almost seems like she might be trying to steer things to be uh, less bloody for Lelouch. Yeah. Which I, I think would be an interesting interpretation for her character, since she doesn't really get a lot of real screen time. Yeah. Yeah, even in season two, I don't think she really gets that much. Yeah. That's kind of why I asked why you thought she teleported them, because it had to be her. Like, I see some people saying it was uh, V2, and, like, his face is shown right before they get teleported, which I think is a decent enough reason for why. But... Uh, C2's talking to someone about it, and she never really talks to V2, but she definitely talks to Marianne. Yeah. Or, like, she doesn't obviously talk to V2, but we know she's talked to Marianne. It seems like she's talking to Marianne even in that scene after they get teleported and they're looking for Lelouch. Uh-huh. So I feel like it has to be Marianne, and then the motivation for Marianne seemed kind of murky for me, but I do wonder if she was trying to lead Lelouch away from ruining his life. Yeah. I do wonder why, then, that they would show V2's face. They do a lot of weird face flashes, um, kind of randomly, as, like, this character's... Like, they flash Mal's face sometimes before he shows up. Oh, really? Yeah, and so I, I think it's kind of like a uh, a foreshadowing that this character is going to be coming up. Yeah. 
and like V2 is related to like the Gyas Shrine stuff that's on that island. Yeah. So there's that, I guess. Yeah, that's true, yeah. V2 is such a fucking asshole character anyway. He just shows up and he's like, Hey, Suzaku, I'm going to explain Gios to you. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck V2. All my homies hate V2. Hell yeah. C2's best girl anyway. Hell yeah. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, I guess just... <coughs> Sorry. Chew. I guess just how much I I really like um, the main cast in Code Geass, especially like Lelouch, C2, and Suzaku. I think they all have very strong traits. And Lelouch and Suzaku, even though they balance each other out, um, they're also kind of the same in a lot of ways. Like, I think both Suzaku and Lelouch are prideful. And that pride gets in the way a lot of the time for both of them. Definitely. Suzaku has, like, the pride that he's doing the right thing. Yeah. That I think trips him up. And Lelouch has some definite ego issues. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, yeah, what a great show. And I've been enjoying it even more with the subtitles and, like, trying to pay more attention to, like, you know, just trying to get a, a better analysis of it, I guess. Um, I, I've been enjoying it so much more, which is a great thing to say in that situation. You know, it, it'd suck if it like, oh, man, I, I really want to analyze the show. And then, it, you know, me working, quote unquote, working to analyze it then makes the show boring for me. But that's definitely not the case with Code Geass. I, I'm going to uh, say Code Geass is... A cold, hard 10 for me. I think it's... I guess it is pretty cold. I wanted to almost say like a, a medium-ish temperature, but may, maybe just like not ice cold, but still cold. Cool. Yeah. Because um, there, like, there is some action, but it never feels hot-blooded action to me or doesn't for very long periods of time yeah you get short bursts of like um you know toto and suzaku going to head to head or some of the later fights in season two with with colin and suzaku or um i don't even remember this character's name but he's like he's chinese and he's very close to the chinese princess Oh, damn. I know you're talking about the cool uh, knight-type guy, but I, I cannot think of his name. Yeah, a lot of those scenes, um, I, I definitely feel give off that, like, hot action-y vibe. Um, when, you, when you really get to see, like, two pilots go head-to-head. Because -head. you don't always get that, and there's still incredibly intense fight scenes, quote-unquote fight scenes, when... Battle scenes, I'll say. Uh, very intense battle scenes where it's like the strategy is, is really what's being pressed here. Um, and not so much like, oh, hey, who's better, Suzaku or Colin? It's Suzaku. It's always Suzaku. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> let... Hey, listen, listen, motherfucker. If you've seen season two and you know that part at the end where Suzaku's like, oh, you know, when they t fucking draw 
when they have a tie and Suzaku's like, oh no, actually, uh, you, uh, Colin beat me, you're so good. No, he's he's fucking being humble, he's being a little bitch boy, okay? She's ass, okay? <laughs> She's fucking dog water, alright? Can't even win a Fortnite. <laughs> uh, so one thing, I was, I was gonna try to explain the difference in my head of what I would consider hot action versus cold action. Sure, yeah. Hot action is about the moment, the the emotions involved, uh, like in the the play by play of everything that happens in the fight, right? Yeah. And for me, cold action would be it's about the things the action represents abstractly. Like the fight between Toto and Suzaku isn't about a fight between Toto and Suzaku, right? It's about like a clash of their different approaches for like their them being Japanese and being impressed by the Britannians, right? Yeah. It it's more to do with the words said. Which I like I guess to an extent that's like all good like action stories. Uh-huh. Is like the, the story that's being told. But I, I guess more what I mean is it the focus of the the those fights isn't so much the action and the play-by-plays as it is like the the implications of like what happens if this character wins in this situation and like how the characters think about like their philosophies and their ideals and everything right and yeah yeah i think focus is a very good way of putting it um you know when we get into Dragon Ball, which we're going to do a Dragon Ball episode next week. Woo-woo! Um, fucking, like, I I don't think this is too spoiler to say, and also we're talking about fucking Dragon Ball here. Everyone knows the villains in Dragon Ball. Uh, you know, fucking Frieza facing off against Vegeta, facing off against Goku, and being like, I'm not afraid of you, simian fucking monkeys, and everything <laughs> is just a legend. Fuck you, you know, and all that. And Goku's like, I'm not gonna let you kill anyone else. Ah! And he, he fucking, you know, all that shit. Like that's hot action because it's, it's you know, it's focused on what they're saying and like during the fight, how they're feeling during the fight, their rage, their fucking. Um, you know, that moment to moment, um, is really the focus. Each, each like important blow, um, in the course of their fucking fist fight. Like that's what's in, is on, that's what's focused. Whereas with Code Geass, um, a lot of the times what's focused is, you know, how are the strategies playing out? What are the twists and turns of, of like this battle on a macro scale? And, um, you know, where, where are the turning points of like what this will mean for the world? You know, like when at the end, when you get fucking Lelouch announcing the United States of Japan, like that makes the following fight like super high stakes. Right. Um, so yeah, the focus is just different for hot and cold. Yes, so I, I kind of thought of the, the best way I could think of wording it is, for me, the, the cold stuff doesn't lend itself as well to action because it is more in the terms of logic and words. Yeah. And the hot stuff for me is 
more conducive to action in the sense of like emotions that can't be put into words or not be put into words as easily. Right. Like, and like, if you focused on like the pain of like getting hit with a punch or something, I feel like that is more on the, the hotter end of the scale. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Whereas like the, the, the cool, the cold elements of code Geass for me uh, with the action in particular is that it always comes down to the characters like beliefs and everything right yeah it's more things they could it's the the reasons for their emotions not the emotions themselves hell yeah it's a subtle but distinct difference that like i think is harder to describe than it is to just see i guess right that's why i think it's a good example of code gyas being cold or cooler and dragon ball being warm or hotter yeah I mean, Dragon Ball is definitely 100% hot. I don't think oh, there's yeah. a uh, cool aspect in Dragon Ball that I can right. think of. Goku's just not cool. There, I said it. <laughs> uh, waifu for season that's one. C2. That's Gohan's the best. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. C2. Absolutely. Best waifu. Okay, there's, there's not even an argument for season one. It's just C2. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely all the way 100% C2. Um that good old pizza butt hell yeah oh yeah and for love scale um damn i think for me it's a 9.5 okay it's it's really 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 amazing and there's just like i i don't know it's just a it's just a tiny half step below some of my 10 shows like like a rumakun or the gurren lagon i think kogias is everything that anime should be Hell yeah. All right. I think uh, that should wrap it up. Um, yeah. Okay. Hey, real quick. Huh? Uh, hold on. I love salad. We, we got to say sayonara in unison. Okay. All right. Three, two, one. Sayonara. sayonara.